0: Hello and welcome to Researching Transit, the public transport research podcast. I'm Laura Aston. Today we have a special episode that will explore the long term impacts of COVID 19 on travel demand.
1: The central major answer from every single person we talk to when we say, How will COVID 19 affect the long term of your activity and travel? after the virus has been has gone and when there's a virus solution, the number one answer from everybody was that they will go back to doing the activities they did before.
0: That was Professor Graham Curry from the Monash University Public Transport Research Group. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Researching Transit. Today, I'm here with Professor Graham Curry. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And and Graham is here today, not so much in the capacity of co host, but as a guest. Uh, This is a special edition of the Researching Transit podcast where we will talk about the impacts of COVID 19 on long term travel behaviour. And this is an area that Graham has been leading a research project in. And we thought it was timely to share some early findings and some of the obje- objectives of this project. So, Graham, tell us a bit about the project that you've been working on.
1: Yes, well, of course, the whole world has been impacted by COVID-19 and it's had an amazing impact on travel. And um, But one of the key questions in the world, critical question, is how will travel be impacted in the future? Um, now, Monash University's been running a special programme of research called the Melbourne Experiment. And it's looking at the city we're based in and all the different aspects of uh, changes in life, uh, changes in security, activity, uh, use of technologies. And we are one of the many projects in that, and we're looking at how um, COVID-19 and its impacts on society are changing travel.
0: Okay, and to start us off, Could you tell us how COVID-19 plays out in stages and why that's important for breaking down the impacts of COVID-19 on travel behaviour?
1: Yes. Uh, Well, there are four phases that are occurring with COVID-19. There's the starting phase, which was where we used to have a normal life um, pre-COVID. Then there was shutdown. We realised we had a problem. Everybody had to stay at home. um, And that really changed travel a lot. Um, currently, uh, time of recording, we're about to begin something called post-shutdown, phase three, where we still have the virus. We're going to try and have activities while we still have social distancing requirements. And that will be uh, a very challenging time. But the focus of our research is not that, because there is a fourth phase when the virus has gone and where all of these effects that have occurred Uh, in phases two and three may have had a long-term impact and that's our interest because the long-term impact uh, you know is going to be for the rest of the future so we really need to know what that impact will be.
0: We certainly hear a lot in the news about the short-term impacts so what's happening right now to uh, different travel patterns the way that people have perhaps moved away from public transport picked up active modes but you're saying the focus is on the long-term impacts. Yes, that,
1: uh, well, it's, it's only understandable because this is affecting everybody. So it's a kind of a shock to their system. Also, the media has a control over this. And there's a lot of sensationalism and even alarmism occurring. Uh, as People are worried, naturally worried about things. Uh, but that's exactly when you really need research to understand uh, the facts of the matter so we can plan properly. So, um, you know, shutdown was only a short term thing. Uh, now, pre-shutdown when we've got the virus could be longer. We don't know. Um, but it's extremely likely that we will find a solution eventually. Uh, that was, that's why phase four is so critically important. And there's a lot of evidence from previous research that shocks can create less lasting impacts. And the question really is, um, have we been planning cities correctly? Does that planning, uh, is it relevant for the future? Which is why these questions are so critical.
0: That's great. Could you tell us then what aspects you've just mentioned form the scope of this project? Uh,
1: well, the scope is really uh, we're focusing on Melbourne, uh, although I think the uh, context here is pretty representative of many other major cities. Uh, a key thing about Melbourne is that we've had phenomenal growth, largely driven by immigration. Um, and this is uh, meant our transport systems are under pressure. Um, There is literally, I think at the moment, 57 billion Australian dollars worth of investment at the moment to expand the transport system. And the key questions here are, is that still relevant? Should we still be expanding given we haven't got any travel? Um, So our scope is really to explore that. Um, And we've got a number of ways of of doing that using our reviews of previous research.
0: Excellent. and you've mentioned here that there are potentially huge implications for the type of infrastructure that we may need in future. What are the types of impacts and how do you frame them that are occurring during COVID-19 that make you suspect that the there will be such great long-term impacts on travel behaviour?
1: Yes, this is the first major contribution of the work. Um, the team has spent a lot of time reviewing previous research, and there's been some excellent new publications from ITS Leeds thinking through you know, major shocks to systems. And from this, we've developed an original framework which we think will tell the story of the future. And the framework's divided, divided into three. So there are three things we effect, think are affecting the future. The first is what we call macro effects. The second is meso effects, and the third is micro. Now, macro is about the economy, employment, growth. Uh, We were experiencing population, um, shutdown as a result of tourism, international travel. These are things that are affecting people, which are very major. It's probably best to talk about the micro next, because this is about individual travel. And what we've done is we've uh, combed the literature to identify factors that had long-term impacts. And the list includes things like working from home, illness, more increased teleworking and telesocializing, uh, different use of travel modes, whether this is having a long-term impact more localized travel, increased home deliveries. Uh, a very important issue, which is current, is infection fear affecting transit usage. Um, the fact that some people have lost their jobs and are, have got less budget, uh, things like housing choices as well, and whether people want to move as a result of these impacts. And then the third is meso level. This is uh, in your local community, uh, and whether you know activities are available, and also whether the transport system is available because that might not be that might be a big change. And we're mapping macro, meso, and micro effects in the sh- during shutdown post shutdown when we still got the virus, and then our target is post-pandemic when we found a solution to it and what those impacts will be in their lasting effects.
0: Wow, when you put it that way you really see how characteristics of COVID-19 permeate all aspects of our yes, lives. so
1: that's, that's right, that's our framework. Uh, the next question is how is it really affecting people? I think we all personally can have a, uh, other stories, how it's affecting us, so we can understand long-term impacts. But we need to understand the population and how there are many different uh, aspects of life, many different types of people living in different areas, and they're being affected differently. So, the first phase of the research program, if you like, uh, was to go out and talk to the population to understand these stories.
0: Yes, we undertook some interviews that had been carefully designed by our team. We had
1: a a great team here, uh, Taru Jane, Dr. Charu Jane from. Uh, PTRG uh, led a lot of the um, administration of this, Uh, Dr. Laura McCarthy, and of course, (laughs) your good self uh, spent time uh, using a discussion framework, talking to many diverse people, and indeed uh, a very important part of our research, which is a bit original compared to other research going on at the moment, is we used a sampling frame to make sure that we had a coverage of many diversities of context contexts. The, the frame split Melbourne into inner, middle and outer because transport systems are very different in those cases. And then we looked at low, medium and high income groups and younger, middle and older age groups. Um, and we selected people from each of these. Um, we only had 18 interviews, but they were carefully select- selected and we ran a whole series of carefully uh, framed discussions with people to understand their travel impacts, to understand um, for for shutdown, to understand as well uh, what they think the long-term post-COVID impacts might be, and then to explore each of these micro-issues, you know, working from home, teleworking, localised travel, these sorts of things with people, to ask them, do they think that these things will change in the long term?
0: And it really was a fascinating conversation and series of conversations to have with a diverse range of transport users, people who use different modes and have different employment circumstances. And indeed, as you mentioned, the sampling frame made it a a unique study and perhaps one of the first in the world. And it's generated a lot of interest, hasn't it, Graham? Now, you've shared some of those results and they've been quite well received at a number of forums. And today we're actually raising some questions that were posed to you as you shared the early findings from these interviews. Could you tell us about those?
1: Yes, uh, the interest is important because we are we are being inundated with media reports of alarmism. There's uh, a lot of social media wishful thinking about the future and hoping that it might change in a positive way, which I would like that as well. But is it really going to uh, be the outcome? Um, so we need evidence, and that's why... You know, the forums that we've been presenting these results in have been uh, sold out. And also, um, the results are quite remarkable uh, because if you read the papers, you would think the world was ending here. Uh, Activity would be very different. But the central major answer from every single person we talk to when we say, how will COVID-19 affect the long term of your activity and travel? after the virus has been has gone and when there's a virus solution the number one answer from everybody was that they will go back to doing the activities they did before
0: by asking people what they see themselves doing in the future they very consistently say that they want to go back to how things have always been done could you give us some examples of of that
1: oh well um the diversity is amazing we have people that have lost their jobs we have people that um, are very scared about the virus. Uh, we have people who have been using new modes and they love it uh, there's people cycling uh, going to work now largely because there 's no cars on the roads and um, uh, but the, the for each of these people, they have a strong desire to do what they were doing before, and even the people that were doing things like cycling recognize that when things go back to uh, post-pandemic, that they'll probably drift into doing what they were doing before because fundamentally the land use we have, the activities we have, the employment we have, the transport system we have is all there influencing their travel and their own desires for pa- travel patterns. Mm. So that's that's really why, but we, we still have reason to believe through the research that there will be some changes um, uh, because of the things we explored uh in the framework about micro effects
0: Mm. graeme you've mentioned that land use ultimately underpins how we travel but what about the fear of the virus Uh, what about these newfound ways of working so working from home will they go back
1: to normal no well i'm I'm glad you mentioned working from home uh, because we explored maybe 10 15 issues which we think would have long-term effects and almost certainly working from home, we think, will be the largest one uh, in, in terms of impacting travel the long term. So our um, sample, uh, probably oversample people who are working from home, and about half of them uh, want to work from home in the future. Whether they'll be allowed to uh, is, is unclear because it's all about employment. And we should, be, we should recognize something which is not recognized enough. And that is, yes, there's more working from home, but it's imposed. It is forced on people. People didn't make that choice. And in fact, uh, you know what our sample says, it's hardly a large enough sample to uh, extend to the population, but it was random and it is structured uh, with a sampling frame. And we found about half of the people would like to. I think they recognized that they probably can't um, because of their employers. But but yeah, a good half also said that they didn't want to anymore. So, uh, but having said that, working from home does affect the peak uh, which is an important, uh, travel time. Um, but, uh, also the scale of this is not big, uh, from what we can see of this evidence, uh, you know, we're probably talking 5% or 10%, um, uh, but, uh, not a, not a huge, uh, volume of of travel effects. And in the context of the, the way that Melbourne was growing, you know, it's a year or so of growth. Um, but nevertheless we think that'll be the largest one and it's a good thing in a way um to make the peak more efficient people are not going to be working from home every day probably one day a week or so um but that we do ne- necess- however think that this will be a long-term effect
0: you said it will be the largest effect could you touch on some of the other specific issues that were explored through the questionnaire
1: so the uh, we had an awful lot of people. In fact, the majority of the people we talked to were teleworking or tele um meeting, even for social reasons. Um, uh, and this has been a huge exposure to the population. And it, and it wasn't big before. However, um, we don't think this has a great impact on travel. It's at the margin. It's not peak travel. um, And we think only a small share will continue to do that in the future. There was a strong desire from the people we talked to to keep uh, keep meeting people in person once the virus has gone. Other factors, uh, as we say, travel impact. We found very little impact uh, of the fact that they're traveling in different ways. There was some more localized travel, but again, it's not a huge volume impact. Uh, Home deliveries, yes, we had more of that. Um, But again, it's occasional shopping trip, you know, one trip a week, and it's only affecting a small share. There's a high lot, lot of people weren't getting home deliveries. Infection fear was probably the biggest one worth talking about. Uh, because there was a strong fear uh, of using public transport. Um, However, we asked the question, um, when the virus has gone, will you still use public transport? And the answer to that was that every single person that used public transport said that they would. Uh, This doesn't mean to say they're not scared. And um, more than half said that they didn't really mind about the virus in the long term. But some people were worried about it. We had one person, we think, that might not travel in the peak in the future, but they would still use public transport off-peak. So that was uh, an important finding. Uh, Now, a lot of this evidence, we can back up with previous studies. We know that uh, studies of SARS in Asian cities, um, it it created a fear effect in those cities because it was very influential there. But uh, that effect was very short-term, three months to six months. Um, we also know from other shocks, such as the 9-11 attacks in New York City, this had a big impact on transit around the world, uh, in cities where you know cars were dominant. Uh, however, uh, the uh, impact was, again, only three months, six months. So we're getting some evidence behind here, suggesting that maybe a lot of these things are not going to be as as big as we think. Um uh, at the micro level anyway. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that you draw the comparison to, to fear, fear-based fear shocks to the system that has affected public transport. But I think as we're seeing, the duration of this is unknown and, and probably quite long-term, which makes it very similar to more of a recession. And so we can also learn something from looking at how recessions have impacted travel behaviour. And um, There are a couple of factors there too, aren't there, that impact individuals terms of employment so um making those work trips there are some people who unfortunately have been displaced from work through this experience and the flow-on effect is that uh there's less dispensable, uh, disposable income going around
1: yes that's right so micro effects are influenced by the macro and the meso and the mic the macro effects are quite amazingly big uh and we know from evidence uh that things like employment effect, particularly casual work, uh, routine work, this uh, has been in decline, actually, for a while, unskilled labour, uh, as we get more automation. And it's also been influenced by uh, economic recessions, and we get a bit of an extra effect from this, and those extra effects have been getting bigger. Mm. However, having said that, um, the evidence from all of the recent recessions is that unemployment, while they raise, they tend to recover. And in, in fact, a 10-year period can be the usual of the last two big recessions. So um, there will be an effect uh, at macro level um, in terms of employment, but it's not going to be forever. And in addition, uh, in the Australian context, uh, we have, Melbourne is a megacity. It's been booming, booming, largely because it's an attractive place to live and uh, people in the world want to come to Melbourne. Um, and this is why immigration has been booming as well. Now, the question is, will this continue after COVID? Well, uh, I think the, the feeling really is Australia has done a wonderful job at managing this. And we think the pressures for immigration will be bigger in the future. So, uh, again, there seems to be evidence uh, building up here uh, that uh, there could be a longer-term uh, return to high-volume Uh, Immigration, high volume population growth, and that while there's an employment effect, uh, certainly affecting some people more than others, uh, there will still be a return to economic growth and economic uh, activity. Mm -hmm.
0: So far, we've assumed that things will go back to normal, but some astute audience members have raised the question at some of our forums what if there is no vaccine? And as we've heard, medical experts say we may have to deal with a seasonal coronavirus. So can you tell us what normal might look like if the virus doesn't fully go away?
1: Well, actually, this is almost the biggest question there is. Um, And frankly, there's no answer yet. Um, However, uh, some people think, oh, well, there may never be a virus. I think the evidence is not clear whether there will be or there won't be. Some people say, oh, well, there's no solution, so we have to deliver this. I say, I don't think there's any evidence to say there won't be a solution either. Um, Now, uh, here's the the problem, uh, or the context. The human race is good at sorting problems out, particularly if those problems are bigger. Uh, We've achieved amazing things in our history. Now, this issue of COVID, not only makes it hard to run public transport systems with social distancing, it makes it hard to run economies. It makes it hard to make profitable economies that are productive the way they were. It makes it hard to have cities where we have agglomeration economies and productivity. It makes it hard to have globalization. It's a significant barrier to all of the good things and productive things we want in society. Now, I'd put it to you because of that Um, You know, trillion dollar problem. I think that we'll find a solution. Um, And uh, now that might be a positive view. Um, However, to get back to your question, what if we don't? Well, the world will look very different uh, with that. And we'll need to understand and work with, um, you know, post shutdown when we still got the virus. For a longer period, and that's uh, going to be a very negative uh, context.
0: It does become a bit of a semantic question, really. Uh, how long until we feel that things are the way they will continue to be? Perhaps is, is the question. And and like you say, uh, we we need to get on with our lives. And so, if the reality is that um, the vaccine may not be forthcoming, then we innovate to find ways to. Have lifestyle and economy that uh, that we all can go on with.
1: Yes, I mean, what's interesting about SARS is, you know, we don't have a virus uh, solution for SARS. SARS just went away because we contained it. Hmm. Now, uh, our understanding of COVID-19 is it's more contagious. Uh, but you know, can we do some superminish measurement? Can we contain it by taking our monitoring to a high level? We actually don't know. Uh, but it's probably worth talking about this. This is what I call a meso effect. It's between the macro and the micro, Uh, but the impacts of uh, post-shutdown at the meso level are quite fundamental to our life in cities, and these could well have a long-term impact. So it's a third group of impacts, which I think people need to think about.
0: So you've addressed the possible outcomes from post-COVID-19, and either way, it sounds like people want to go back to traveling the way they always have. Now, what does that mean then for public transport? And particularly whilst we still have the virus, we've heard the results of a lot of modeling uh, that the capacity of public transport has to lower. Can we enforce that? And, and how do we ensure that that happens?
1: Yes, so this is uh, the big influence on problem. And I think people need to really understand this. Um, Now, we cannot run public transport systems the way we normally do. Um, Because of social distancing, we can probably only really run them and allow about 10 to 20% of passengers on the system. Now, this is really bad for cities because uh, the majority in Melbourne, the city of Melbourne, uh, majority of travel in the peak going to work is by public transport. It's 60-ish uh, to Melbourne, the city of Melbourne. That's about 220,000 people. Um, if we can only run public transport and have about 10% of the popul- of the ridership on it, that means for the city of Melbourne, 200 odd thousand people need to find an alternative way to get to work or to work at home. Uh, at the moment, only 9,000 people. Work at home. So to carry, to get, to get 200,000 people to work somehow means we've got a double, you know, 20% growth, uh, 20 times growth, 200%, um, to, 2000%, um, so, uh, which is very hard. Um, at the moment, we have a very congested traffic context for Melbourne pre COVID. That's only 117,000 cars. Suddenly, we're trying to find a way to get two hundred thousand people to work in that area,
0: tripling and, the volume. Uh, <laughs>
1: and uh, you know, a ten percent growth in car traffic creates gridlock. I hope you can understand from this the scale of the problem we are facing. And this is Melbourne, you know, um, where we we have a dominance of cars in most of the Greater Melbourne area. Uh, cities like London have this problem as well. Um, the answer is going to be doing things differently. Um, and I think working from home, certainly we've been forced to do this. The idea that we can do more of it or continue it is, seems a reasonable uh, a ch- a chance. One real truth in Melbourne is that our cars are supremely inefficient. We have an average occupancy in the peak of 1.04 people per car. Um, There's three seats empty on most cars. You know, if we can get people to to ride share in cars would be a great chunk of the the solution. The great hope as well, of course, is using other modes, biking, walking, uh, uh, changing road capacity to get people in. And this is why I think we, we have a necessity to do this. We're not trying to do this for environmental reasons, to be um, you know, pro active travel. We're actually doing it because we have to. And um, that itself, I think, could create some long term travel impacts.
0: How then, Graeme, do you think public transport, the public transport operators, or perhaps the governments, if it is the government who oversees public transport, how can they respond? to help this situation post-shutdown?
1: Well, uh, the first uh, issue is maintaining service levels because there is a necessity to maintain the system. Then we can do uh, what we can to impact social distancing. Uh, You know, we cordon off seats um, and we also improve cleaning and also we try and reduce uh, touching in different parts of the system. But I think we need to be innovative about this. We need to really use the whole width of travel demand management measures. And Melbourne's quite innovative in that we already have a free before seven ticket. This is a, a ticket you can buy to use public transport, which is free as long as you get to work before seven. Uh, it's Seven o'clock is a bit too early for people. I think we should move that till 7.30, maybe even eight o'clock to spread the peak. Um, we can think of things like peak fares to discourage peak travel. Um, we can also, um, uh, reduce off-peak fares. We have a free fare zone in Melbourne for our tram system, which I think doesn't make any sense anymore. It was really for tourists to help them get around all the great venues we have in the city. Um, but there's no tourists, uh, and effectively the free fare is giving money to people to do the wrong thing, uh, which is to, instead of walking, getting on a tram in the local area. So we should, we should stop that, in my opinion. You know, these are all tools. We use them when they're right and wrong. I think it was a great thing having the free fare zone, but it doesn't work for our context now. Um, and, uh, you know, things are different. We have to learn some flexibility. Um, and actually, that's a really great thing for society. We've always been path-dependent. On our transport systems and this shock is giving us uh, a view showing us that we need to th- be able to uh, think alternatively and uh, giving a shock to habitual travel behaviors.
0: I think that is critical that we not say a certain approach to public transport or travel is right or wrong, it depends on the circumstance and what we're dealing with right now is uh, an unprecedented circumstance and so we need to flip our thinking in many ways because the objective at the end of the day is to enable people to access where they need to go whether it's for work or caring or health or recreation and that's the most important thing and public transport will continue to have a role to play in that albeit a smaller one, because in order to ensure people's health and safety, it can't take as many people. And so we need to look at the other options to ensure that access, uh, economic activities, social interactions are not compromised as we get on with life. You mentioned walking. Um, Walking is the right thing to do in a busy city. So what role is that going to play? And what are the other things? What about working from home? What role does that have in post-shutdown?
1: Well, they're all essential. Not nice to have, which is what I like about this. You know, our dominant philosophy in transportation of the last century has been predict and provide, build more roads, have more cars. Um, Now we need to change all that and we need to start being inventive, thinking of new ways to plan. Walking, well, we have no choice now uh, because uh, we don't have enough car parking capacity in central areas to handle this volume. We don't have enough roads to do that. Um, it's very likely we'll have people trying to use cars, car ownership's high here. Uh, Some cities are expanding car parking capacity. I think that's a mistake because um, it's just going to increase the congestion on the roads. Um, uh, But however, the idea of of, uh, travelling to inner areas, Melbourne's a very, very big city, it's twice the size of London, uh, people can 't really walk all the way from the middle suburbs they can 't use public transport, so there 's a kind of necessity to do things differently. Uh, the idea of parking in inner suburbs and walking in is more feasible. The idea of doing the same with cycling um, tricky we 're about to come into our winter, which will be more more difficult. Uh, we certainly need to spread working hours um, and do things differently to get this to work.
0: Excellent. Well, that's quite a a big toolbox there. And and in the the months to come, we'll be seeing how they can be deployed to effectively maintain access for people in cities around the world. So it's really important. Do you think this has long term implications for the future of public transport, Graham?
1: Well, um, if we find a solution to the virus, which I think is extremely likely, Uh, There's some memories at the moment, actually, as we're recording this of solutions. Um, And I think it's very likely we will find a solution. As I say, the pressures that are on the future of humanity are for cities and they require uh, public transport systems. Um, I mean, one positive about this is I think we've realized how important these systems are to get cities like London, the mega cities, to work. Um, so I uh, I think it's good in a way that we've realized how precious they are, how we have to protect them. If we find no solution to the virus, we're going to have to rethink about um, cities entirely and the economy and how we work. Uh, and because that's such a shocking effect on humanity, livability, and uh, the desires we have for you know, um, growth, um, I, that's why I think we'll find a solution. Um, so, yes... Uh, the effects on public transport are not good in the short term, uh, but I'm very confident that we'll find a solution and we'll suddenly realise um, how valuable the systems are in creating accessibility and, and making cities work.
0: Mm. Now, some of the impetus for the research project and, and many of the questions that have been asked address infrastructure investment. Uh, And here in Melbourne, at least, we have quite a pipeline of public transport as well as mega projects that are going on. So uh, what are the possible implications for delivery of of these infrastructure projects? Yes, so
1: um, it's a big question governments are asking themselves uh, because $57 billion, that's a huge amount of our economy uh, for one city, Uh, not not for the, the nation, it's just Melbourne. Uh, We're building metros at the moment. Um, I think, uh, uh, and also um, we've got a ring metro we're thinking of building. Uh, To my mind, these projects still make a lot of sense. Uh, Because of our growth, we've been playing catch up with our infrastructure. And frankly, we needed Melbourne Metro uh, five years ago. Uh, So uh, that project still makes sense today because we're not going to be losing population, that's for sure. And you know the macroeconomic changes, I think, are that will return to growth, meaning that we'll still need to have London-type infrastructure for a city twice the size of London. Um, so um, I think that's the, the truth of it. I think, however, the future development of new mega projects will take a hit while we just make sure that we are on a path to continued growth. This is a natural effect. So I'm expecting that the uh, current $57 billion worth of uh, investment projects will go ahead. That will be enough to keep the economy going while we're sorting out um, uh, a return to growth. And then we can start looking at the future and how that might look.
0: Excellent. Now, we are still in the early stages of our research. So perhaps you could share with the listeners what uh, comes next. Yes. And what the ultimate objectives are.
1: Yes, yeah, so I should point out these results are preliminary. They are uh, indicative, um, which is why I have some confidence in talking about the results. Uh, but we need much better evidence than this. Um, so what we're doing is we, uh, we've used the uh, interviews, qualitative research, to develop a research program which is more qu- quantitative. And we're doing um, a very large questionnaire using a sampling frame to a very high share of the population of Melbourne uh, for a study of this kind to test these answers out with a bigger sample and to explore differences in um, uh, impacts on different types of people at a high level of detail and for very different parts of the city. Because I think um, while the aggregate results are likely to be very similar to what we found in, in we're, we're going to get very much different effects in different parts of the city. Uh, and also we, we can you know, use this to confirm, uh, I think, our findings. But let's see what the evidence says. Um, and we'll be using that to do a bit more strategic modeling of the overall impacts of this to explore um, um, how, which factors have been influencing change in travel. And we mean sort of... Um, Uh, People's experience of various uh, histories of major events, changes in lifestyle, Um, the impacts of things like working from home at a higher level of detail. Um, And we can sort of do some sensitivity testing of these effects, really helping us understand long term impacts at a a, a higher level of precision um, to give us the evidence we need to plan for the future.
0: And I think it's important to note that the changes. To travel and also the ability of people to to undertake new habits like working from home that isn't evenly distributed ap- across the no. population and so by doing this large survey uh, it will hopefully start to show up uh, what the different trends are mm. by way of um, population breakdown how the the different behaviors might be distributed that's
1: right we we need to recognize that uh we as planners researchers We often project our own opinions of the world onto what we think is happening in society. Uh, One of our team, Dr. Alexa Del Bosque, wrote a great paper about that, about how many sustainable transport workers and researchers and planners uh, project themselves and their own views on others. We we really need to recognize there's a lot of diversity out there. And um, in particular, I think a lot of the transport community is working from home. They can do that. But that's by not the case for the community. You know, we had we talked to uh, mothers with children who just could not do that. We we even had fathers who found it very hard to work at home because of the noise. Um, some people don't even have the technology. Some people have a job that they just could not do that. Um, now, uh, so this, I think there's, to be honest, uh, uh, there's a equity effect here. I think the worst stories are likely to come out from disadvantaged parts of the community. You know, um, a few people have talked to me about disabled people, about people on low incomes, unemployed. Um, and we need to understand all of those stories and do something about that uh, for everybody, not just for the rich people.
0: Great. Well, Graham, I am certainly pleased to be involved in the project and excited to continue on. It was great to share this insight with a wider audience today. Thank you all for for listening. Graham, thanks for sharing. Thanks very much. Um, and and perhaps we can check back in uh, and and provide an update down the track when this research is further developed.
1: That's right. Well, if people are interested in keeping up to date with what we're doing, they should link up uh, with me on LinkedIn or yourself uh, on uh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Also, um, Researching Transit uh, is a good uh, media and has um, various social media links if you want to know more.
0: Yes, you can follow us on Twitter. The handle is transitpodcast or visit the Public Transport Research Group's website at ptrg.info to stay up to date with new podcast releases which also go to the usual podcast channels
1: um and we're interested in hearing from other people about their research and what they're doing
0: thank you graham and thanks all for listening this has been a special edition of the researching transit podcast produced by the monash university public transport research group we look forward to bringing more conversations to you next time